First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. Today is our final day in this cancel culture series. We started out several weeks ago talking first about what cancel culture is, this ungodly movement in our society to cancel other people by distancing ourselves from them or silencing them if we disagree with their view on some topic. In the past couple of weeks, we've looked at some of the specific ways that our culture is uh, seeking to cancel our views as believers and how we are to respond to that. We talked about how our culture, culture wants to cancel our faith in God, how our culture wants to cancel our faith in the Word of God, in the Bible. But you know, out of all of the biblical views that we as Christians hold, there is nothing that we believe that is more likely to get us canceled today than our views on the subjects that we're talking about in this final message of this series. Uh, In our culture today, you know, you can stand up and uh, argue that your favorite baseball team, be it the Braves or the Yankees or whoever it might be, is the best. And people might disagree with you, but they likely will not cancel you over that. Uh, You can stand up and argue that Chick-fil-A is the greatest fast food establishment on the planet. And maybe some uninformed and most likely unregenerate person might (laughs) disagree with you about that, uh, but they won't cancel you for that. Actually, I take that back. They actually might cancel you for that, but... But but here is the point. If, If you dare to stand up and speak out about what the Bible says about the family, including God's design for sexuality, for marriage, and for gender, our culture will cancel you immediately. Our culture today, which says it prizes tolerance above all else, has no tolerance whatsoever for those who would dare say a word against the sexual revolution that is moving, frankly, at lightning speed to push the moral envelope further and further and further. But if we would be faithful to God and to his word in this generation in which we live, we cannot cave in to culture. We must speak and share in love what we know to be true and right and good. And that is what I hope we will see today as we go back to the very beginning, to Genesis 1 and 2, and we look at God's original design for the family. I hope that we will understand today that God's design for the family is good, and it is for our good. But our culture is attempting at least to cancel every single part of it. And listen, that's not going to go well for our culture because healthy families and marriages are the basic building blocks of society. 
And when we attack them and when we undermine them and when we wage war against our creator's design, it will inevitably lead to chaos and confusion and so much more. Obviously, the issues that we are talking about today are not easy. And I know that there may be some here today for whom these issues are very, very personal. Perhaps because you have a family member who is struggling with their gender, with their sexuality. Maybe it is you personally that has been wrestling with these things. And if that is the case, I want you to know that as I have been preparing this message this week, I've been praying especially for you. I'm going to share some difficult truths from God's word today, truths that are hard to hear and accept. But what I will tell you today will be true because it will all come from God's word. And in the end, the truth is what we need, even if it is not what we want. Because Jesus said that only the truth will set us free. But in addition to God's truth today, I also want to tell you today about God's grace. Because both truth and grace are found in the person of Jesus Christ. And friend, there is more than enough grace for you and for me and for any of us, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done. We're going to look at several areas where our culture wants to cancel God's design. First off, let's talk about how our culture wants to cancel God's design for marriage and for sexuality. Now, I just want to warn you up front, uh, there will be more points up here on the screen than I think I have ever had in any sermon I have ever preached. Uh, This outline today, frankly, is just out of control. And so I I just say that to you because I know that there are some of you who are uh, note takers and you like to get every single point written down. And sometimes you get mad at me and I love you for it, but, but, but for missing a point. And, uh, and I just want to tell you up front today, you have about a zero chance of getting all this information down. And so, frankly, I just would not try. But we will post the entirety of this outline on our Facebook page today. It will be on our website here in just a couple of days as well. And so you can get it there. But under each of these headings today, what I want us to do is to compare what God says with what our culture says about these things. And so as we look first at the subject of marriage in Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God says marriage is a good gift from him. Whereas our culture says marriage is optional at best and oppressive at worst. If you have read before the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, you surely will have noticed How at the end of every one of the days of creation, God evaluates what he has made and declares it to be good. At the end of the sixth day, when he created man, God declares it to be very good. The first time that God says anything in the created order is not good is in Genesis 2, verse 18. Look at that with me. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. 
God says it wasn't good that Adam was alone. And so in verse 21 and following, we read about how God formed and fashioned Eve from a rib in Adam's side and then presented her to him. Uh, Really, if you think about it, God in this first wedding ceremony was like the officiating minister at wedding ceremonies today. He is the one who pronounced Adam and Eve husband and wife. And you see that in verse 24. We read, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Again, if you think about it, the very first institution that God created and put into this world was the family. And the foundation of that institution of the family is the relationship of marriage between husbands and wives. And that relationship is declared to be good. It's a part of God's good creation. It's here in the second chapter of the Bible. It shows up even before Genesis chapter 3 when sin enters the world. And so we must affirm that marriage is a good gift from God. But our world today largely says that it isn't. Again, many see marriage as optional at best. And you can see that in the growing percentage of couples who are living together before marriage and in many cases continue living together without actually ever getting married. There are some in our culture who see marriage as worse than optional. They see it as oppressive. They see it as a quote, domestic prison meant to enslave them and they want nothing to do with it. But church, we understand that both singleness and marriage are gifts from God. And concerning the latter, we must continue to affirm that it is good. Here's another contrast we see about marriage in Genesis. God says marriage is a special one flesh covenant relationship where husband and wife are joined together for life. Our culture says marriage is a contract that can be broken at any time. And we saw that truth just a moment ago in Genesis 2:24, where God said husbands and wives are one flesh. You know, that language of being one flesh is not used to describe any other relationship in the world. It's not even used to describe the special relationship that exists between a parent and their own child. But that one flesh relationship is used to describe marriage. It is special. We are one in every way, one physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. And of course, this implies that we are meant to remain as one, to remain in a committed relationship with one another for life. And Jesus said explicitly that when he was asked one day about marriage in Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he, Jesus answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Now note that Jesus says that we're going to come back to that truth later. And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, quoting from Genesis. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. I won't add any other comment to that other than just to say what a corrective these words from Jesus are. 
to our easy, no-fault divorce culture that views marriage as something that is temporary and expendable, that we are free to leave at any time if either party isn't as happy as they thought that they would be. Next, we see here that God says sex is a good gift within the covenant of marriage, but our culture says sex is about self-gratification and can be with anyone at any time. Now, while the word sex does not show up in Genesis 1 and 2, it is implied in several places in this text. Certainly the reference to husbands and wives being one flesh includes the physical aspect of that intimate oneness. We also see in verse 25, the reference to the two of them being naked and unashamed. And then, of course, we'll come back to this. But in chapter one, there is the command from God to be fruitful and to multiply, which, of course, we know is quite impossible apart from sex. The Bible is clear throughout that sex within marriage is a good gift from God. But the Bible is equally clear that all sexual activity outside of marriage, as God has defined it, is sinful and wrong. Hebrews 13 puts it about as as succinctly as it can be put. It says, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. But our culture will not hear this or accept these words at all. The sexual revolutionaries are insisting that sex be with anyone we choose at any time with no moral boundaries and that must be accepted and even that must be celebrated. And this is why Christian, we who hold to a biblical sexual ethic are in the center of the crosshairs of our cancel culture because we are standing in the way of where they want us all to go. And we are particularly standing in the way when it comes to this last contrast about marriage. God says marriage is between one man and one woman. Our culture says marriage can be anything that we want it to be. On June 26, 2015, granted this was less than seven years ago, the U.S. Supreme Court handed down a 5-4 decision on the case of Obergefell versus Hodge. And that case and that decision granted to same-sex couples the right to marry one another in all 50 states. You might recall that the night that decision was handed down and in the days that followed it, rainbow lights bathed the front of the White House. It was a clear message to all of us that something that had just happened that in the opinion of the occupant of the White House we should all be celebrating. And yet if we would be biblically faithful, we need to say that what happened that day was not something to be celebrated at all, but rather it was something to be mourned. Because marriage, an institution that was created and given by God was being fundamentally redefined by our culture. And in so doing, our culture was seeking to normalize and even celebrate homosexual relationships. Of course, many people, if not most people in our society and including many professing believers have already accepted by now 
homosexuality as normal and good. And yet we must be clear, the Bi- and I don't know how to put it more simply than this, the Bible has absolutely nothing positive to say about homosexuality whatsoever. Now there are some who would say, but isn't that in, just in the Old Testament? Absolutely not. Here's what the New Testament has to say about the subject. Romans chapter one, we looked at this passage just a few weeks ago. The word of God says, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. God clearly condemns homosexuality, both in practice and in thought and intent throughout his word as being against his good design for us. Now, one of the things that will be said in response to that is, well, how can you say that God is against homosexuality when I am a homosexual and God made me to be this way? A full answer to that question goes far beyond the time that we have today, but just by way of a brief answer, while studies have not been conclusive as to all of the factors that play into a propensity towards homosexuality, I would actually not deny that a biological factor plays at least a partial role in those who are so inclined. Many people will testify that when they found themselves being attracted to the same sex, it was, especially at first, not a welcome discovery, which of course can cause someone to feel as if this is innate in some way and was always there. But you know, the Bible teaches us that we have all been affected by the fall. We've been created by God, but because of sin, because of our fallen nature, we are not as God created us to be. We will all have different temptations and different tendencies towards sin that we must battle against. This does not mean that we can give in to those sinful temptations. It certainly does not mean that we should identify with that sinful behavior and make that our very identity. Jesus said that if we would follow him and be his disciple, we must deny ourselves. And there will be things that all of us have to deny if we would follow Jesus Christ. And so, friend, if same-sex attraction is something that you or a loved one of yours is battling, I would say to you, first of all, that this church is a place where you can be open and honest about that struggle, where you will be met with love and with the grace of God. And I pray also that you will find here and find in the Word of God that there is hope in Christ that there is freedom in Christ, that there is transforming power in Jesus Christ for all who repent and trust in Jesus, no matter what it is that we must repent of. We've talked about how our culture wants to cancel God's design for a marriage and for sexuality. 
But next, let's talk about how our culture also wants to cancel God's design for the family in general and particularly for the relationship between parents and children. Just as we did under the last heading, let's contrast what God says in his word with what our culture says. First off, God says to be fruitful and multiply and that children are a blessing. Our culture says children are a regrettable byproduct of sex that should be prevented and avoided. As we turn again to Genesis, it's interesting that the first command that shows up in the Bible, the very first thing that God tells us to do in the whole Bible is in Genesis 1, verse 28. This is what God said. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Be fruitful and multiply. That is the first command. Now, we are far from a perfect church. I want you to know that. But if there is any command in the Bible that we are obeying, if you have ever been to our preschool hallway, it is this command. We are being fruitful. Children are everywhere in our church. And you know what? I love that. Because the Bible says children are a blessing, that they are a gift from God, that the fruit of the womb is a reward. But in our culture today, it seems that many people have the opposite opinion of children. You can see that even statistically. In the falling birth rate in our country that, listen, has virtually been cut in half since 1960. In the year 2017, the Wall Street Journal called it the millennial baby bust. You know, you can also learn something about our culture's attitude towards children by just paying attention to the absolute vitriol that has been pouring out over the last few weeks at the mere prospect of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade and returning the issue of abortion to the states. But despite how our culture may view children as a nuisance or as something to be discarded, As believers, we will continue to affirm that children are a good gift from God and that every single one of them is created in his image and is precious in his sight. Here's another contrast we see about the family. God says parents should teach their children to walk in his ways. Our culture says parents are an obstacle that are in the way of teaching them to walk in their ways. You know, in Genesis 1, we see the command to be fruitful and multiply. In the chapters that follow, we see Adam and Eve and their descendants obeying that command. And just a few chapters later, in Genesis chapter 18, we meet a man named Abraham. And this is what God says to Abraham about his household. He says, for I have known him, I've known Abraham in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice. That this is God's intention, not only that we have children, if we are married and if it is possible for us to do so, but that we teach them and that we train them to walk in God's ways. That's what he wanted for Abraham's family and that's what he wants for our families today. 
If we had time, we'd go to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Deuteronomy chapter 11 and many other passages in the Bible that teach this truth so clearly. The Bible says we are to teach our children, our households, to walk in the ways of God. While we cannot believe for our children, we are to do everything in our power to point our kids towards faith in Jesus Christ. But we need to understand that our culture and our world also wants to teach our kids. The the proponents of the sexual revolution have known for a long time that the real key to changing the culture over the long haul is to reach children at a young age and influence their thinking and influence their worldview. A story came out just last weekend about a middle school girl in Colorado who was invited under false pretenses to what turned out to be an LGBTQ club. According to the girl's mother at the club meeting, she was told that if she wasn't 100% comfortable in her female body, then she was probably transgender. She was told that heterosexuality and monogamy were not normal. Worst of all, she was told that if her parents weren't, quote, safe, that it was okay to lie to them in order to attend future club meetings at the school. I wish that this was an isolated incident, but I believe in what Dr. Al Mohler has said, quote, the push of a secular worldview erodes the roles of parents in the upbringing of their children. Case after case, story after story chronicles the downgrade of parental rights. He goes on to say, if parents object to secularization, then they must be, quote, removed from the equation. You know, our mission statement as a church, which comes from Jesus's great commission, is right here on the wall. We exist to make disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. And we believe that that task of disciple making starts in our own home. It starts with our own children. And that is why, church, we need to be teaching our children and grandchildren in age-appropriate ways about the things that we are talking about here today. Because we need to understand that we are not the only ones who are trying to teach our children something. We need to remember this. Cancel culture also wants to make disciples of our kids here and everywhere for the glory of sinful, rebellious man. And that's why parents, we need to be asking our kids what they're hearing at school, what they're hearing from their friends. We need to be asking questions. We need to be listening to what they're saying and listening to the worldview from which they're saying it. Because it is our job to teach the truth of God's word to our children, to not only teach them what we believe, but why we believe it. It's our job to teach our kids the goodness of God's plan for their lives, that God's plan is actually better than the plan that the world has for them. And we've talked so far about how our culture is trying to cancel God's design for marriage and sexuality how they're trying to cancel God's design for the family, for parents, and for children. And number three, we need to quickly look at how our culture is trying to cancel God's design for gender. Again, let's look at what God says versus what our culture says about this subject of gender. The first contrast is this. God says he created two genders, male and female, in his image. 
our culture says you can be any number of genders or have no gender at all. Genesis 1.27 is such a pivotal text about God's creation of us. And again, it's in the first chapter of the Bible. Look at it with me. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Male and female. There are two genders created by God with no third option given. And these two genders are, of course, complementary. Obviously, both genders are needed for children to be conceived. That is a biological fact. Both are needed for there to be a mother and a father in the home, in the household, which, of course, while not always possible in this world broken by sin, we understand this is God's intention and God's design. Two genders, male and female. In the Bible, this is very, very simple. But in our culture today, it is not so simple. And even though basic biology and our DNA tells us that every one of us in this room is either a man or a woman, our culture has tried to separate the concepts of sex and gender. Our culture is teaching today that while our sex may be biologically determined, our gender is not determined. Our gender really has more to do with how we feel and how we, quote, identify. Our culture says there aren't just two genders. Rather, there is a spectrum of genders in which someone can identify. As Sharon James points out, in 2014, Facebook provided 56 gender options that you can choose from. By 2018, they must have felt like that list was not sufficient, and so they increased it to 71 options. But as James notes, most people have absolutely zero idea what most of these genders even mean. Some of these choices are neutrosis and two-spirit, and the list goes on from there. To go on with this dizzying array of gender choices is a dizzying array of preferred pronouns, that you are told you are obligated to use if you don't want to be considered a transphobic bigot. One trans support group explains that the most commonly used singular gender neutral pronouns are Z and here. And an example of how they should be used is helpfully provided. Chris is the tallest person in class and Z is also the fastest runner. Others claim the best way to refer to gender neutral people is to use the plural pronouns, they and them, even though you're just referring to one singular person. I agree with what one person said. The English language just simply cannot bear this. (laughs) Nor should it have to. Because church, it is utter nonsense. There is no spectrum of genders. There are two genders created by God, male and female. Despite the slight of hand trick that our culture has performed in trying to make gender about how we feel and how we identify, our gender is no different than our biological sex. It is the same. Because I am biologically a man, my gender is male. If you are biologically a woman, your gender is female. This should be self-evident. This has been self-evident throughout most of the history of the world. And yet our culture is so confused about this 
that recently a nominee for the highest court in our country was asked to define what a woman was. And she replied that she could not define the term woman because, quote, she wasn't a biologist. (laughs) With respect, with respect, when you accept the teaching of God's word, it brings a great deal of moral clarity to the question of what a man and a woman is. And you no longer need a biology degree to answer the question. There's one more important contrast about God's design for gender. God says our gender has been foreordained by our creator. Our culture says we are free to choose our gender or to change it at any time. You know, a few weeks ago on Mother's Day, we talked about the sanctity of all human life. And we studied these words from Psalm 139, where David talks about how God formed him in his mother's womb. Let's look at them again. He says, for you form my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you and I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed and in your book, they all were written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. You know, it probably goes without saying, but when God formed David in his mother's womb, when God put David together and wove his body together as he formed him, he formed him as a male child. God knew before David was born that he was going to be a boy. And of course, the same is true for every one of us and every single person in the world. God who created us foreknew and foreordained our gender. He created us as male or female. Therefore, our gender has been assigned to us by God and is not something that we are at liberty to change And yet in our culture, in a very, very obvious attempt to try to throw off every vestige of God's authority over our lives and to assert our absolute and total independence from him. Our culture says that even our gender is something that we can change at any time based on how we feel. It is clear that the T in LGBTQ is what the sexual revolutionaries are focused on right now. And you see the evidence of that everywhere in our culture. You see it, for example, at Disney World, where their inclusion and diversity manager recently announced that the park has removed its familiar greeting of ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, in order to create a, quote, magical moment For those who don't identify with traditional gender roles, now they will simply say, hello, friends. You can see this revolution showing up if you pull out your iPhone because Apple has recently introduced a new pregnant man emoji to its list of options. Even though all humanity has known since the dawn of time that men are incapable of becoming pregnant, our society has forgotten it. But once we become so twisted in our thinking, church, to begin to believe that gender is a construct that we are free to claim and change at will, all boundaries are off. And that is why this is not something that it will be possible for you to avoid in the days ahead. This is going to affect everyone if it hasn't already. It's going to affect, and it has already affected, things like bathrooms and locker rooms and the privacy and protection of our sons and our daughters. 
Probably what has caught the most attention lately is how the transgender identity movement has affected the world of women's sports. Most notably is the case of University of Pennsylvania swimmer Will Thomas, who competed originally on the college, their men's swimming team, before transitioning and taking on the moniker Leah Thomas. After joining the University of Pennsylvania's women team, Leah Thomas, as she desired to be known as, had an unfair advantage over all of her female competitors because, of course, she is still biologically a male. While only an average collegiate swimmer as a male competing this past year as a female, Thomas won numerous races, set records in multiple distances, and even won an NCAA championship in the 500-meter freestyle, besting her biologically female competitors. What is sadly ironic is that after fighting for decades for equity in women's sports in terms of funding and opportunity, many believe, including many who, by the way, do not hold to a biblical view of gender, many believe that this push for transgender inclusion will represent the end of women's sports as we know it, unless something is done to prevent it. But this chaos and confusion, listen, it is the inevitable result of refusing to accept God's design for our bodies and our gender. Adolescents and children are now being told at younger and younger ages that if they don't feel comfortable in their own body, that they should consider transitioning to the opposite gender. Some are even pushing for puberty blockers to be given, even to young children struggling with gender confusion, even though studies indicate that an estimated 90% of those folks, for them, that confusion will dissipate if only puberty is allowed to have its effect. All of this, I hope we understand, is an attempt to change what our maker has created us to be. Here's how Isaiah put it. Isaiah wrote, woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or shall your handiwork say he has no hands? When we strive and when we fight against our maker, it will not go. Listen, it will not go the way that our culture wants to lead us to believe. That's why even secular studies have shown that the emotional health and even the suicide rates of those who go through transitioning to the opposite gender, it does not improve. And in many cases, it worsens the outcomes for them. Friends, if you are here today, and again, this is a very personal issue for you because you have wrestled with confusion about your own gender. Again, I would say to you that this is a place where you can be free to talk about that. That this is a place where you will be loved and met with compassion. This is also a place where you will hear what you will not hear in our culture. And that is the truth. That your ultimate joy and peace in life will not be found in rejecting your God-given gender, but by receiving it even when that is difficult for you to do. Friend, you have been fearfully and wonderfully made by a God who loves you very, very much. 
I know we've covered a lot of ground today and there's so much more that can be said about all of these topics, but in the last few minutes we have, I want us to think about how should we live in a culture that wants to cancel us and cancel our views on all these topics. First of all, I just want to remind us all of this. We must stand firm on the truth and be willing to suffer for it. As the sexual revolution marches on in our culture, we are seeing that unfortunately many churches and even whole denominations of churches have already raised the white flag of surrender. They have capitulated to culture. They have sacrificed the truth of God's word in an attempt to appease the cultural warriors who find these biblical views unacceptable. But conservative Christians who still believe in the inerrancy of Scripture are teaching what the church has taught and believed for the last 2,000 years of church history. And so let our culture say what it will. Let our culture do what it will. Let them say that we are on the wrong side of history. I'm really not all that concerned about whether I'm on the wrong side of history. I just want to make sure I'm on the right side of eternity. I just want to stand where God's word stands because the flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of God will stand forever. Number two, we must believe the goodness of God's design and we must model it in our own families. Now, certainly we want to be equipped. We want to equip ourselves to respond to these ways that culture is seeking to cancel our biblical viewpoints. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, our pastors have put together a list of suggested resources if you want to study further on these topics. And you can find that list at this website, fbcmail.info slash cancel culture. But with that said, the greatest evidence that we can give to our world that God's design is good is to really believe that it is good. The greatest example is that we would live that goodness of his design out in our own lives and in our own families and in our own households. Number three, this is so important, church. We must never become Pharisees who forget that we are sinners saved by grace. And I cannot emphasize this enough. Heaven forbid, heaven forbid that as we learn more about the direction that our culture is heading, that we become like the Pharisee in Jesus's story that stood there in the temple and prayed to God and said, God, thank you that I am not like this sinner over there. Heaven forbid that that would ever happen because we must never forget that we are also sinners. We are not better than anyone else. We were broken. We were lost. We were blind. But God in his grace reached down his hand and lifted us up. And church, isn't that what we're praying? He will do in the lives of everyone that we love and know, no matter how far they might be from him right now. Number four, to paraphrase Carl Truman in his book, Strange New World, When we look at everything that's happening in the world today, we must not be naively optimistic or despairing. But instead, we must live with unshakable biblical hope. Yes, we need to pay attention to what is happening in our world, right? We can't live with our head in the sand, even though I admit it is tempting to want to do that sometimes. 
but also as, as we pay attention to what's happening, we're, we're going to face the opposite temptation, which is to get super depressed and despairing. And perhaps some of us have fallen into that in recent days. But neither one is acceptable. What the Bible calls us to is an unshakable hope. And our hope is not based on anything getting better down here. That's not what the Bible teaches. Our hope is based on the promise of God. Our hope is based on the fact that one day the Lord Jesus will return and all that is wrong right now will be set right then. Now, I can't speak for every one of you, but I can speak for myself. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And then lastly, number five, church, let's make sure of this. That as we respond to our culture, as a church family, we must love and welcome all people. And never stop sharing the good news that anyone from any background can be saved, can be changed by God's grace. Now, while being a member of our church, of course, is another matter, people do not have to agree with everything we believe. In fact, they don't have to agree with anything we believe in order to attend here. When lost people come, we need to understand that lost people will live like lost people. They'll think like lost people. They'll believe like lost people. But when they come into this place, they should be met with the love and the compassion of Jesus Christ. What we need to tell them is what we found to be true for ourselves, that even though we were all lost at one point, even though we were all broken sinners, that God met us where we were by his grace and he changed our hearts and he changed our lives from the inside out. And we need to tell them the good news that the same thing can happen to them. That anyone who turns from sin, no matter what the sin is, and turns to Jesus, can be saved. I love so much the words that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and I'm going to close with these words. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. Paul says to them, and such were some of you. That's what he's saying to those that are in the church at Corinth. Such were some of you, but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. Church, anyone from any background can be saved by God's grace and we are proof of that. I'm gonna ask you to stand as we worship together. And I want to invite you, if you're here today, and you would say, you know what, I, I, I need that forgiveness. I need that grace that comes through faith in Jesus Christ that you were talking about. I know I'm a sinner, but I want God to forgive me, to change me, to make my life new. I want to take that first step of faith. I don't know what the rest of the road looks like, but I'm ready to take that step number one. And just trusting in Jesus who loved me and died for me. If that's you, I want to invite you to come and share that with me. Share that with any of the other pastors that are here at the front. Maybe, again, you're here today and this message is a very personal one because someone in your family, your household, your extended family, maybe even you, 
struggled in these very issues. When you want to know what God's word says, you want to know how to help that person, how to point them to Christ. And maybe you just want to come and pray with one of our pastors and say, can you just pray for this person, but also just pray for me? Pray that I would know how to stand in what is true, but, but how to speak winsomely about the truth to this person that I love. Maybe you just want to come and just between you and God, just pray for that person. The altar is open to come and kneel here and just to pray as we sing and worship together.